Hello, everyone. I'm Paul Menzel. And I'm Jim Conlon. And this is New Tricks for Old Dogs. Our podcast features the many ways us older folks howl at the moon, odd news items you don't normally hear about, and conversations with other old dogs who are growing bolder, not older. So if you've got 25 minutes or so, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a chair, and join us. In this episode, the old dogs ramble about the billions of dollars spent on national elections and what we could do with that money instead. We do some tisk-tisking about potty-mouthed parrots. We lament the proliferation of fake news. We applaud a young man from Lincoln, Nebraska for his courageous stand on chicken wings. We celebrate essential workers, the unsung heroes of the pandemic. We dip into our email bag for some fan mail. And in other culinary news, we warn you not to eat too much licorice. The Old Dog's conversation is with Mark Swan, a multi-talented gentleman who followed a winding trail to reach his 83rd year. Stay with us. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind? Well, I tell you, Jim, this being the election season, I was looking up some information on how much national elections cost us. Yeah, what'd you find? Well, according to Yahoo News... Federal elections involve spending over $11 billion. Doesn't that make your jaw drop? Uh, my jaw is on the floor. Okay. Yes. And, and, of course, it begs the question, if we if we didn't spend that money, what could we do with it? Oh, really? Well, as it happens, I have been doing a little research of my own on that subject. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And what I've found from a variety of sources is, you know that we could provide Medicaid for almost 3 million people? With, okay. with uh, that $11 billion or so. Do you know that? Uh, and, no, but now I do. And okay. Thank you for that. Plus, plus, we could more than quadruple federal spending on energy efficiency and renewable energy. Sounds like a good cause. Yep. We could increase federal aid to public schools by 60%. Wow. And okay. we could quadruple assistance for low-income households. Imagine that. Well, those are all great causes, man. We could really use that money for better things. Uh, of course, now the, the problem is how are we going to elect people if we don't have all that paid ads and stuff going on? Well, that's a good question. You well, have any thoughts on I, that? I just happen to have <laughs> a thought on that. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, what if we did elections like it's a beauty contest? Yeah. All candidates had to like parade around in formal <laughs> evening wear, yeah. and and uh, they'd have to answer goofy questions like, "If you were the queen of the world, what would you do?" Uh, and of course, the best part is a talent competition, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, wouldn't you love to see some of these guys twirling a baton? Well, I I remember when Bill Clinton played the saxophone on uh, the Tonight Show, and I thought that I would have elected him just on that alone. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Oh, and I tell you, the capper would be. A bathing suit competition. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now, now that would that would that be better than term limits, I think, to get some of these older guys out of the Senate. Well, we're not just talking about guys here, though, Paul. Remember? Well, that's we're, true. Well, yeah. it works for everybody. Maybe that's if you can't look good in the bathing suit, maybe it's You're time out. to head home and mm. uh, open that consulting uh, business that mm. you've wanted to do. Okay. Well, um, th- that's fine, but it, I think that it could be viewed as a little bit ageist or sexist or whatever. Possibly. Well, we got both men and women. I know, but still, I mean, what if, for example, we did uh, like a, one of those um, TV reality contest shows, you know, where they, they have to go through these impossible uh, obstacle courses. 
or put them all on an island and whoever survives, <laughs> whoever can swim through shark-infested waters is the new president. Yeah. Good idea. Yeah, I like it. I like it. If, if you don't like a bloodbath, what about Jeopardy? Make them all play Jeopardy yeah. and the winner becomes president. I'll take world domination for $100, Bob. <laughs> you Don't know you? what? I could make this very simple, Paul. What? Set them down at a table, two by two, with a mug of beer and some peanuts, and have them arm wrestle. Okay. Pure and simple. Okay. You could have brackets, you know, and get it down to the final two. I like it. Um, what about a hot dog eating contest? <laughs> <laughs> And that's, the winner. That's my favorite. Yeah, right the there. president favorite. consumed 50 <laughs> hot dogs. The Lincolnshire Wildlife Center in England has a problem. Foul, foul language. This pod nugget is from Sky News for September 30th, 2020. The fowls in question are five parrots named Billy, Eric, Tyson, Jade, and Elsie. The problem is they all have potty mouths. When they're together, they seem to set each other off in a competition of, well, foul language. They haven't had any complaints from patrons. In fact, some people find it very amusing when the parrots tell them to F blank blank off. But there was some concern that younger visitors may be increasing their vocabulary in the wrong way. At the risk of ruffling some feathers, the five (laughs) parrots have been separated. They're now in different parts of the park in the hopes that they will pick up natural calls from the other African gray parrots. And hopefully they won't be teaching the other parrots to be dirty birds. Yeah, what are the odds? Anybody with a smartphone and a twisted mind can post misinformation on the internet and make it seem factual. Fortunately, there are some websites that can help seniors separate the wheat from the chaff. This item is from the New York Times for August 22, 2020. Senior Planet is part of the nonprofit Older Adults Technology Series. They offer a free class on Zoom called How to Spot Fake News. The one-hour class gives you some tools for checking the truthiness of what you're reading on the Internet, including reputable fact-checking websites like factcheck.org and politifact.com. You can find the schedule of classes on Senior Planet's website, seniorplanet.org. The AARP and the media nonprofit Pointer Institute have co-produced a more extensive program called Media Wise for Seniors, which includes seminars and classes. The first program was a webinar hosted by Dr. Sanjay Gupta that addressed some of the COVID-19 misinformation in circulation. The AARP will post future events on its website, aarp.org. Online misinformation often overlaps with online fraud. The AARP website has a ton of resources, including extensive information on common fraud schemes and how to spot them. We've often said that this organization is the most trusted source of information and advocacy for seniors. If you're not a member, you should be. It costs as little as 12 bucks a year. Oh, that's chump change. <laughs> the advantages of membership are too numerous to mention, so we won't. Check it out yourself. What's in a name? Well, a lot if it's the wrong name. This item is from the New York Times for September 3rd, 2020. The city council meeting in Lincoln, Nebraska, was proceeding as usual, covering complaints, appointments, and applications. About two hours in, a young man named Anders Christensen approached the microphone to present a meatier subject. With tongue-in-cheek, he complained, 
I go into nice family restaurants and I see people throwing this name around and pretending as though everything is fine. I'm talking about boneless chicken wings. Hmm. I propose that we as a city remove the name boneless wings from our menus and from our hearts. And with tongue in cheek, he continued. I wonder how he talked with his tongue in his cheek. Nothing about boneless chicken wings actually comes from the wing of a chicken. Boneless chicken wings are just chicken tenders, which are already boneless. I don't go to order boneless tacos. I don't go and order boneless club sandwiches. It's just what's expected. He closed with, we can take these steps and show the country that's where we stand and that we understand that we've been living a lie for (laughs) far too long and we know it in our bones. Suppose the next step is a full-blown conspiracy if someone can tie chicken wings in with the fluoridation of water and vaccinations. Until then, I guess we'll just have to wing it, Paul. Yeah, and this is the way it sounds with your your tongue in your cheek. I know it seems like we've been in quarantine for years. Oh, yeah. But it would be worse without the essential workers who have been doing their jobs while most of us stay safely at home. This pod nugget is from the Washington Post for August 12, 2020. Of course, we're grateful to healthcare workers during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. They deserve all the gratitude we can send their way. But let's not forget that there are many other people doing essential jobs that also deserve our gratitude. A good example is the many people who work in grocery stores. Initially, these workers were hailed as heroes and offered additional hazard pay. But months later, the hazard pay is gone and working conditions are stressful. One Safeway employee complained at the beginning they valorized what was deemed a dead-end job, but four months later they don't even treat us like humans anymore. Grocery workers have been demeaned, screamed at, and even assaulted for reminding shoppers of safety protocols. Think for a moment how difficult our lives would be without groceries, mail delivery, garbage pickup, repair services, and police protection. These are also people who are risking COVID-19 by doing their jobs every day. Yeah, the restrictions during the pandemic can be irritating, but we shouldn't take it out on people providing essential services. Come on, folks. A smile and a thank you doesn't cost anything, and it might make someone else's day. From time to time, we've got an email from our listeners. It's really easy from our website, olddogspodcast.com. Click on the Contact Us option and give us a piece of your mind. Now, here's a comment from Donald P. He says, great stuff. One Father's Day, my younger daughter gave me a framed quote. My dad didn't teach me how to live. He lived, and I watched him do it. Those of us who have been fortunate enough to reach a certain age need to remind ourselves to keep living, learning new things, and taking on new challenges. Your podcast is a great reminder to keep howling at the moon. Well done. Well, doggone it, Donald. You captured what we're trying to do with this podcast. Yep. Stay bold as you get old. Your comment makes this old dog want to roll over and wag his tail. Uh, Paul, be careful. The last time you did that, you spent the night in the emergency room. Oh, yeah. I forgot. All right. Who knew you could eat a fatal dose of black licorice? Apparently, the guy who ate it didn't know. 
This pod nugget is from the New York Times for September 25th, 2020. The victim was a 54-year-old with no history of heart problems who worked at a physically demanding job. But in January of 2019, he collapsed at a McDonald's and died 24 hours later. Mm. The apparent cause was too much black licorice, prompting a cardiac arrest. Black licorice, in case you didn't know, contains a compound called glycyrrhizin, which can cause your potassium levels to fall, potentially leading to congestive heart failure. Before you start cleaning out your pantry, though, there were other issues. Oh, yes. The man had a poor diet and smoked a pack a day. And here is the fatal flaw. He had apparently consumed one to two large bags of licorice daily for two weeks before he died. That's a lot of licorice. Well, it depends on how you look at it. It's not a lot of licorice to me, Paul. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Well, I I think the best advice is switch to another flavor. I prefer red licorice anyway. Mark Swan is a person who refuses to be typed. He has been so many places and done so many seemingly unrelated things that we wonder how he can be defined. So we decided to ask him. Uh, So, Mark? You've had what some people would call a checkered career, mostly doing what you wanted to do. So does that have anything to do with your being an Aquarian? Well, I think if you're looking for a description of someone who's a bloody menace, then (laughs) perhaps uh, Aquarian fits the bill because I'm a kind of a person who's not willing to follow prescribed patterns of behavior. I'm, I tend to be passionate about things, very stubborn, and I switch allegiances perhaps too quickly. But I do want to emphasize that uh, if I've given the impression that I've done what I want to do, um, when you decide to raise children, you uh, don't decide one day I'd like to raise children and the next day I think I'll give it up. Once you've made that choice, it is a life's commitment. And so obviously there's more spine in me than I'm willing to admit, because all my children are grown, they are adults, they are not in jail, and uh, as far as I'm aware, they're doing okay. Okay, not not in jail. That's a pretty rigorous <laughs> testimonial there, Mark. I got another question from the bio that you sent us. You spent your youth in the Sudan. During this time, you developed an, uh, an interest in butterflies and moths? Yes. Um, well, as a, a child, my parents, my father in particular, did what most... Um, people of the time did, we went on hunting trips. And for a hunting trip, you had to go south. So my father would went in, and we went with him, in hunt of lion and kudu and uh, antelopes that he wanted to have on his wall when he returned home. But he became a conservationist rather quickly when he realized what was going on, that the desert was advancing south, as he said, at the rate of about a mile a year, as goats consumed shrubs and people chopped down trees for firewood. It was a a sad experience, and he recognized the long-range consequences of that. 
So it was a very fascinating experience at the end of a particular time in history in Sudanese Africa, I think. So it seems then, Mark, that this is the origins of your lifelong pursuits to engage in nature, to be aware of what was going on in nature, and to pursue various interests that led you, in some cases, farther and farther into the wild. Let's just say I was given opportunities that many other people do not have. They were able to send me to Trinity College Dublin, and I chose natural science because obviously I had an interest in butterflies. And then the question came up, well, what do I do next? The fact is I wasn't committed to natural science, but I was committed to adventure. So <laughs> I decided this was an opportunity to go somewhere. So I went to Canada, and um, I went to the University of Saskatchewan, where I studied plant ecology. And the first thing that happened to me was I was sent on an expedition into northern Canada by float plane, mapping vegetation on places that people, I suppose, had never been before. And it was such an exciting experience, I couldn't believe it. And so I worked from there to develop a mathematical method to try to understand why certain plants were living together and not with other plants. And that led me to Harvard University because one of my professors knew people there. He thought that I had something to offer in the way of research. So I ended up at Harvard University Forest in Petersham, Massachusetts. You know, Mark, uh, obviously at this point in your life, you're geared towards teaching at a prestigious university. You're coming out of Harvard postdoctoral work. What happened? Well, I'm not very proud of myself at this point. I thought that I had sort of an angel sitting on my shoulder. So I was very irresponsible when I knew I had to choose an academic career at that point. I chose not to. I bought a piece of land in northern Vermont, 10 acres on a mountain stream, and I spent my summers building a cabin, my first summer, and I suppose it it was sort of a David Crockett existence. I, I was um, not surviving off the land. I had a plastic tent. I bought my supplies. I kept them cool in the stream in a cooler. And <laughs> I just built a cabin. It was what I chose. Well, most to do. most importantly, did you did you get to wear a coonskin cap? Ah. Coonskin caps were not in fashion at the time. Oh. If they had have been. <laughs> well, but still, it seems almost like paradise, doesn't it? Well, there was paradise to it. But, um, <laughs> and then I, uh, well, I fell in love. And that changed everything. Absolutely 
everything. Tell us about that. Well, um, my wife, she became my wife. If I wished to spend time with her, I was going to have to be a breadwinner. And the choice was so important that I decided, okay, I've got to do whatever it takes to put bread on the table. She was a very capable woman, but she couldn't raise children and earn a living at the same time. So we had to make a new living together. And, you know, that was tough. It was very tough. So how did the arc of your life change at that point? What did you do for a living? Well, I, um, <laughs> what happened was I took a job at a printing press as manager of an art department. And I eventually got fired from that operation um, for very entertaining reasons. So we decided to move south to either Texas or New Mexico, and we eventually moved to San Antonio, where I found people who thought um, having a PhD was useful and that I could read and write English so I could be a technical writer. So I became a technical writer. <laughs> it seems, Mark, that you were very far from nature, very far from the uh, environment that you really wanted to be in. I don't think that my connection with, with biology was ever any more strong than my connection with anything else. Uh, it, as an Aquarian, if that's what it is, I was assorted by passions of interest, and they switched from one time to another. <laughs> well, post-retirement, Mark, you have become a writer. You have published your first book. Uh, tell us a little bit about your first book and, and that transition into being an author. Okay. What happened was my first wife died. Um, I was so happy in my first marriage. I married again, and my second wife, who was a lovely person, we would be watching television in the evening, and some politician would come on with a statement that I felt was hypocritical and dishonest, and I would yell at the television. So I decided if I was going to have an objection to what I was hearing and seeing, then I'd better know what I was saying. So I started to research American politics which I did not understand, and I think my wife did not either. The two of us discussed it, and eventually it developed into a need to set down what we had discovered. And what did you discover? Well, there are basically two kinds of people, those who are risk-averse and those who are risk-tolerant. And the risk-averse people tend to function more powerfully in situations of distress or confusion than that of risk-tolerant people. And risk-tolerant people tend to reason through problems, whereas those who are risk-averse tend to require fixed solutions, solutions that are already pre-prepared and identify with them rather than having to think about change. Mm -hmm. It's not to say one is better than the other. 
It's to say that there are two different ways of looking at the world, and gridlock may be the result of that more than it is the result of any particular uh, political affiliation. Mark, let me jump in here. We should get in a plug. The title of your book is Selling America to the Highest Bidder, Hypocrisy is Not Democracy, and it's available on Amazon. Is that right? Yes, it is. You've made great sacrifices in your life, Mark, and it sounds like you're not just at peace with it. It sounds like you're a happy man because of it. I am a happy man. I have more than I can possibly accomplish in old age, even though I'm alone. It's a purpose in life, and that's what you always have to have, I suppose. Like what you've been hearing? How about sharing the joy with your friends? We can always use more listeners. All our episodes are available on our website, www.olddogspodcast.com. And there are a lot more episodes on the way, so stay tuned and keep howling at the moon.